0: Hi, I'm Victor Milligan.
1: And I'm Jennifer Isabella.
0: Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means. We're exploring the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. We have two guests with us today, Forrester analyst Mike Galtieri and TJ Kitt, to discuss where we are with AI, how we should think of AI, and where we're going with AI. Welcome, gentlemen. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So AI has gotten a lot of press recently and much more on the existential sort of fear of the end of civilization kind of way. This was some issues raised by Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, and others that talks about robotic warfare. Is this how we should think of AI? Is this the worries we should have?
1: I think it's fun to think about that. Um, it makes for great sci-fi movies, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot coming out. We've already had a ton, right, based upon the end of humanity. Um, but it's not it's not a, the reality that we think about, and I don't think most enterprises are actually focused on that. Um, AI is very narrow in scope. It can be very valuable right now. But that's sort of pure AI, uh, where like Ex Machina, if you ever saw that movie, I mean, it's not, we're not close to that. So I I don't, I mean, it's a worry, but I think for an enterprise, it's not their worry. Their worry is how can they use AI today uh,
0: to make their companies more successful. So in the context of sort of launching a technology, we're not sure exactly how it will work, I mean, one of the analogs is nuclear technology, where it was, it was very clear it was going to create efficient, effective, uh, inexpensive technology. But it wasn't so clear about nuclear waste and all the implications of that. Is, are we in the same place where we're, we're fairly clear of the advantages of AI, but we're just sort of getting hold of all the things that may not be intended in its full implementation?
2: Yes, I I think that is exactly where we are. I think we are in a period of a lot of excitement about the possibilities that Mike laid out. But I do think that we are rushing without the proper guardrails around the more pragmatic applications. So if you look at things like facial recognition technology, um, we've had that for quite a number of years. And while it has improved, it still has failings. And a lot of those failings can be based on point of origin. So there was an article in Science not too long ago related to how different sorts of facial recognition technology perform. This is important because law enforcement uses facial recognition technology uh, to scan Large groups of people for anyone who may have a warrant or things of that nature.
0: Right. This is a form
2: of the profiling. Exactly. Exactly. So what they found was, hey, if we if we look at some of these technologies that are put out in places like China or um, in South Korea or Japan, they do a far better job of recognizing faces of East Asians as opposed to Caucasians. Vice versa happens if it's technology that's developed here in the United States or in Great Britain or in France. And when we look across all of these um, you know, kind of technologies or, or pur- purveyors of these technologies, what we see is that they all do a pretty poor job of recognizing the face of African-Americans. Um, so if you're applying this technology in law enforcement situations where you're using this to go pursue somebody, if it's misidentifying people, then that obviously is problematic. And a lot of that can be, again, attributed to some of the unintended kind of consequences of developing these technologies and how these technologies are developed. So I think there is a need in the marketplace to at least take one step back and say, do we have the appropriate teams? Have we done enough contingency planning around what we're doing? Do we understand the use cases? Do we understand the environment in which they'll be deployed, the context in which they'll be deployed, so that they can appropriately plan for and think through how these things will then affect your everyday average human being? And I think that's the real issue here, not whether Skynet will become self-aware and blow up most of his civilization.
1: That example that TJ just gave, you know, the facial recognition of, you know, really what he's talking about is accuracy, and AI isn't just about facial recognition, right? It's about voice recognition. It's about predictive models, predicting other things and making decisions. So accuracy of AI is not absolute, right? It's always based upon a probability. So so, so this is a concern that all enterprises, how do I know that I have enough accuracy
0: without some of the unintended consequences? So the underlying premise of AI is algorithmic. I mean, it's either sort of, pattern matching, or I think uh, TJ said earlier, sort of based upon inference. So how much of this is sort of a design question? Is that part of it, which is the idea that uh, the nature of the designer will dictate the nature of the algorithm, which will dictate its probability or accuracy?
1: Well, yes, but it's the nature of the data that's used, right? So there's training data that's used. Okay, and so ultimately the designer or the AI engineer, they make a decision about what training data to use. And that training data, that's how the machine's going to learn.
2: So just to kind of elaborate on Mike's example, so if you were to take, um, and I'll speak generally about our industry, the tech industry, so if you were to take your typical tech company, um, which I think all studies have shown aren't necessarily highly diverse in terms of their workforce, and you were to plug in the badge pictures of every individual that works in that company as your training data for, say, an image labeler um, or a facial recognition system. What you produce by doing that is, you know, to your point, um, that bias because the company is undifferentiated in terms of the types of people that work for it. Therefore, what the system then recognizes as a person versus all other types of entities on this planet becomes skewed based on what it's been exposed to time over time. It's, so let's just – let me
0: back up. What are the different forms of AI that the listener should be paying attention to? And What's so the most likely either current implementation of – it's already in place, just in a lighter form, if you will, and what you'd expect to see over the next two years in different industries? Yeah.
1: So I, I mean I think the best way to think about AI is there's two types of AI. There's pure AI and there's pragmatic AI. So pure AI is the sci-fi stuff. That, that isn't what we're talking that, – that, that's something that can mimic fully human intelligence – um, and there was actually, a, and that's not what we're talking about. We should be talking about pragmatic AI. But there was a study done recently. It was, it was published in May. It was an academic journal. Um, and they, they surveyed AI researchers. And they said, hey, when do you think we will have pure AI? They said 100 years from now, there's a 75% chance that we will have pure AI. I don't know. That's not that long, really. I mean, I, I won't be here to see it, to see that 20, uh, 75% chance. Um, but that that's the pure AI. So there's researchers still working on that.
0: And the interesting part about that is that if you're out there and you're thinking about AI, I suspect that's carrying the lion's share of the press. I mean, that's the stuff people are talking about because it's interesting, it's sexy, it's frightening, and that type of well, thing. Well,
1: also, it also ties into the other thing that we haven't talked about, well, job loss in AI yeah. as well. And, and the same survey asked them a bunch of like human tasks, like how long it will take. But if you're here today in an enterprise, um, that's – not the stuff you should worry about. You know, So that and, and what you should worry about is pragmatic AI. AI isn't one technology. It's comprised of multiple technologies that can be used together or in part. And, and we've identified nine of them. Nine of them are, some of them are pure technologies, Some of them are sort of use cases for that technology. So deep learning is one of them. Um, and deep learning is an underlying technology that uses neural networks that's often used for image and voice recognition. There's machine learning, which is used to create predictive models, which is very powerful for an enterprise. I mean, that's – look, machine learning, if you're an enterprise, that's the number one AI technology you should be looking at uh, to to make outcomes. Um, You've got speech recognition, which we've talked about. You've got image image and video analysis. So it's computer vision. Uh, So that's another one. Um, Another one is sensory perception, right? Because if you think of intelligence – you ever watch that Star Trek episode? It's just like a brain in a tank. Yes, I did. It's yeah. like, um, and and they don't really have a body, but they had to be able to sense right to be intelligent. Otherwise, they'd never be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they couldn't make it to the show. So sensory, so sensory perception. Um, there's also natural language uh, understanding. So speech recognition is one thing. That's understanding the word. That's understand the words, the words versus the words context versus the or semantic context. understanding. So, so that's another one of the technologies. Um, there's also NLG, which is natural language generation, right? So once you understand the words, how do you respond? Mm-hmm. And uh, robotics, how can you make things move um, in a factory? I mean, there's lots of cases for r- robotics as well. So those are really the building
0: block technologies of AI. So as we look at industries right now and the and, uh, use cases that are fueling the interest in AI, could you go through a couple of the use cases or like what's a pragmatic view of the application of any of those nine building blocks Mm -hmm. in AI. So why
1: don't don't I start with the simple one, um, which is the use of machine learning to create a predictive model. So part of what AI does or can do with machine learning is analyze massive amounts of data to predict something. So if you think about Netflix and the recommendation engine or any recommendation engine, it's analyzing massive amounts of information and it's creating a model to say, I think Victor wants to watch this next. Right? So that's a machine learning model that's predicting something. Now, if you can predict uh, something that a customer will like, if you can predict their behavior, like whether they're going to churn or not, you know, people don't normally associate those type of customer analytics as AI, but it is. It's using machine learning models to predict things. If you take a customer journey and at every step you say, is there something I can predict here that will make this hyper-personalized um, or better for the customer – then you're going to create a list of ideas of how you can have a data scientist then use machine learning to create a predictive model. So so that's one of the most successful uses of AI in that narrow scope of machine learning. There's many other use cases, though, with the other technologies like the chatbot.
0: Yeah, and to your point, it's interesting you mentioned the Netflix or the ability to predict churn, which is that has been a fundamental building block of the telecom and media market for a decade plus, yes. which is the ability to understand different customer behaviors and what that might portend.
2: Well, I think some of the other things that we haven't um, addressed are things like um, decision assistance. So, I am trying to make an informed decision on which way to move—you know, to go this way or to go that way. The question is, do I have enough insight into what all of the possibilities are in the landscape to help me make a wise decision? So, where you you begin to see you know, some of these technologies also applied. Um, Especially in cases like healthcare, you know, so that's kind of where IBM would like Watson to be. Is I am trying to make a decision on or a diagnosis of what this patient has. Here are all of the inputs, but I am, you know, I may have thirty years of experience in medicine, but I am not encyclopedic. So can I feed the information into a machine and let the machine think through based on its access to the large corpus of information that's available on? Um, issues in this particular type of uh, field, maybe it's oncology, um, to help me understand whether I am on the right track. So I think that's another, you know, kind of big area, which base is based on kind of a lot of that Mike was just talking about in terms of you know predictive modeling, but then also moving into some you know kind of broader areas around you know, how the machine makes inferences based on what you feed it through natural language understanding, and then its ability to read um, across a bunch of different data sources to then formulate some sense of, you know, here are the possible or the potential outcomes, you know, based on this, this background that you provided me.
1: Yeah. TJ, that's often called augmented intelligence yes. too. And I actually talked to a, uh, one of our clients, a big auto manufacturer, you're, you're talking about the doctors, right. Mm-hmm. But they're trying to keep the production line going, right. right. And, and complex machines, thousands of pages of manuals,
2: same thing. Right. And so you see some of that stuff also kind of pop up in, um, you know, or has a potential to pop up in areas like fleet management and assistance to um, their, your field force. So, if you think about a, a large shipper like a UPS or a FedEx, um, where should this, where should the driver of the truck go first, based on traffic patterns, based on where he is, based on where all successive um, deliveries need to go? Yeah, it seems like one of the common threads
0: here is that sort of the mixture of big data. What do I do with all of this data? Because humans simply can't process that volume at a workable speed to make a business decision. So there's a problem of just density or mass. And then there's a problem of where does the data sit and how to make you know, how to make decisions in a process or journey, as you described, Mike. Is part of AI sort of remedying the natural evolution of big data, which is now that I have oh, yeah. it, how do I convert yeah, it?
1: Yeah, no, it's great just... point. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, a prerequisite to doing any of this AI stuff is to have data, right? It all it all works with data. So it's a it's a prerequisite. So if an if an enterprise doesn't have sort of their big data house in order, you know, you're gonna have trouble starting that. But it and it is a very natural when we had the big data, um, you know, when big data was a big thing in the 20 2015 timeframe, uh, this is a very natural extension. Because the big data phenomenon was about we've got all this data, there's so much value, what are we gonna do with it? AI is the answer.
0: Yeah, explain sort of why it took hold in telecom, which just creates an enormous amount of data. And I suspect that as we look at banking, as it tries to convert its wealth of transactional data and insurance, which is now through IoT about to take on a whole new wave of data, that AI is going to be an essential, how it's implemented is a separate question, but it's going to be a central part to being able to convert what is or could be high value data.
1: Yeah. And I think TJ makes a great you know, the great example of like the logistics example you gave you, because that's not sort of the sexy AI application that you hear in the the general media, but it has millions of dollars in implications, right, if you can do it
2: right. So I actually want to come back to something that we mentioned a little bit earlier about using artificial intelligence to wrangle and corral your existing data assets and make use of them. It actually ties in very nicely with the point that we were making about logistics as a sound application of artificial intelligence. And that's because they're, at least kind of from my perspective, um, less of a human risk, if you will, in terms of using your data that you have in that fashion. And the reason why I say that is if I am just using my existing data to make decisions about the turns a truck should take, I am not introducing kind of the four elements that I think a lot of companies should be thinking through when they're trying to apply these technologies will this thing create bad press? Will this thing lose us customers? Will this thing get us sued by our customers? And will this thing get us um, fined or sanctioned by some regulating body? And that's because I, as an internal developer trying to apply these technologies, don't have to concern myself with what we were talking about earlier. Do I have a representative body of of information about people? Am I going to inadvertently or accidentally exclude people based on you know just my limited understanding of what the world actually is. I am focusing on a specific business problem that's internal to us in solving for that problem. I think where companies get into trouble when trying to figure out how best to use all the data that they hold closely in more general terms is that they can sometimes fall victim to the biases that they have within their own data. And those biases, when you know, kind of hard coded into these intelligence um, or these artificial intelligence um, systems, can create the issues that I think that we've been you know, kind of talking about. So I think there is something you have know, to be said about using AI as a way of corralling your big data assets. But from, I think,
0: an, from an internal operational standpoint, first, right. because the outbound risks are limited. I mean, right. not that PL is a small risk, but
2: it's it's a it's a risk that you own, if you will. Yes, it's a it's a it's a more understood risk. Yeah. which I think is kind of the what we want to come back to. It's do I understand all of the implications of a driver taking a left or taking a right versus do I understand all the implications of applying a facial recognition technology to some service offering that we want to provide to our customers. So, between the world of sort of risk to the customer world,
0: risk to the population, and internal risk chatbots have caught a lot of people's imagination as a way to, to garner significant efficiencies. Mm-hmm. But it has a very meaningful impact to customer experience. So where are we in a chatbot as it relates to AI and as it relates to a, a, a rational evolution?
2: Well, well, I mean, I think there's there are several issues related to this. So there's, there are the, the interfaces themselves. You know, so here is the thing that I interact with, whether it is from Facebook or for some other party that's providing the, the the, um, the interface, then there are the underlying technologies that support it. So who's going to provide for us our natural language understanding, who is going to be able to provide our natural language generation to talk back to the customer. And so it's, it's really a matter of how do we cobble together, you know, separate pieces of technology to make this work. I think what we've found is that we'll take for instance, you know, kind of the exuberance people had for developing on Facebook. Facebook has a limited number of things that they can provide to their customers, and so when the platform was first rolled out and people first started using it, the conversations that their clients could have with these bots were fairly rudimentary because Facebook wasn't providing all of these things necessary to complete the business process that you had intended to occur inside of this um, this chatbot that you had placed inside of Facebook Messenger. So I think there is a um, a sort of a kind of a slow reckoning, a slow dawning on the business world as to where there is significant you know, kind of energy and interest from the customers in terms of interacting with these bots. And then where that energy and interest aligns with the actual capabilities of the technology and the integrations between different types of technology that Mike was describing in order to make the bots really useful and usable for customers.
0: So Mike, I want to go back to a a point you had made that you know one of the prerequisites for AI is is having the data, um, but one of the other prerequisites I imagine would be the skills in which to program or work with the technology. So, can you talk a little bit about whether there's a skills shortage or where we are today from a skills? Perspective? Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, it depends. So, there's some AI technologies that are easy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that are that are done for you. So, they're we call them AI APIs. So if you want to do speech recognition, uh, you can call an API at Google, Microsoft, Amazon. Mm-hmm. If you want to do a conversational, uh, you can call an API. So no data scientist, no AI engineering. Uh, it's, bu- it's been done for you. There's others, though, like machine learning specifically or deep learning, where typically you would say that's a data scientist. There's a new term sort of AI engineer emerging mm. as well. Is there a shortage? Not the way people think there is. Mm. It's popular to say, oh, there's a shortage, they're unicorns. And that's because people are looking for too much in a data scientist. They're saying, oh, data scientists is rare because they have to know statistics, they have to know machine learning, um, and they have to be able to build models and, and use some of the tools. But they also say that data scientists have to understand the domain, and that's why they say they're unicorns. The reason why people think they need a data scientist for those, you know, that they, they have to have the domain mm-hmm. knowledge is because the data scientist has to come up with the ideas for what the machine learning model could do. But you don't need the data scientist to actually do that. Any business person who understands their business, who knows how to walk through, a whiteboard a business process or whiteboard a customer journey, they can do it, mm-hmm. right? The way they do it is they just say, is there something I could predict here? But that's not enough. The other roadblock that the data scientist might run into is knowing what data sources are relevant or might be relevant. So the next skill is, oh, where are all those data sources? How can I get those data sources? A newly hired data scientist, they don't know that portfolio. Yeah, it's they a don't scavenger know what, hunt
0: at that point in time. They,
1: right, right. So what you do is you hire a scavenger. Yeah. You hire, and they call them data engineers. They usually- it's a much better name. Right. <laughs> and it's someone who's been in the organization for a long time and they know where this data is and they, they, they get the data, they hand it to the data scientists on a silver platter. So, so yes, there's a shortage, but there doesn't have to be, you know, for, for a smart company.
0: So as this conversation started, we started with pure AI, which dealt with the existential end of civilization, beginning of civilization, post-singularity, whatever it might be. We move towards pragmatic AI and nine building blocks of sort of technologies, but as we've talked, this feels like more of a way of thinking, a way of designing something. Is that fair? It's it's yes. I mean,
1: I, I think the way I would phrase it is for AI to move forward in enterprise. They have to they have to they have to infuse it into existing customer journeys and business process. And and again, I think it's as simple as asking questions. Can I make it speak? Can I make it converse? Can I make it understand? Can I make it predict? Can I make it personalize? Can I make it move as in robotics? Uh, can I make it see, you know, using image analysis? So th- these are just fundamental questions that do not require a PhD in, in computer science or AI to ask. Every business person can ask those questions. Question is, okay, how do I, can I implement that? What's the pragmatic? And that's where I think, I think TJ's ideas over... Uh, let's call it adult supervision of the implementation and guardrails is is necessary.
2: Right. And I think to go beyond that, I mean, I think it does raise a lot of questions around who is in the business and what level of influence they have over how these things are trained and then to Mike's point, implemented and supervised. So I think what we have to have if we want to successfully implement these technologies you know, in businesses, both for the purposes of improving the customer experience and the employee experience, is a real conversation around how we have staffed the business to design, develop, and deliver these sorts of technologies, processes, workflows, et cetera, to the marketplace. And you can fix
1: bad models, or models that that act inappropriately. So, for example, this happens all the time. Google, Facebook, they have ad engines. It's all based upon machine learning. So, guess what? Uh, Facebook detects, Google detects death in the family, but they have a rule. So, so the machine learning model says, "Oh, perfect. Let me put an ad for caskets," and you know that sort of thing, right? It's like that's what the machine learning model does, but they have a set of rules that says, "You know what? Let's not do that," right? So, so – so and, that, and that in itself um, is somewhat of an AI technology and that is knowledge engineering to, to extract human rules and human knowledge, which could have bias in it too, right? Yeah. But, but you can kind of – you know, so there's a combination of these things that can be used to offset um, problems. It won't be perfect though.
0: It seems like AI is a technology a little bit like a wild animal, which is it's, – it's extraordinarily energetic. You can do a lot of different things. But you have to know that going in. You can you can capitalize on it. But there has to be some understanding of what unintended consequences could exist. Because once it leaves the building, it is going to cause things like bad press, litigation, and other types of things, or acute loss of revenue. So is part of this putting that governance structure in place up front, sort
2: of anticipating the unanticipatable? Yeah, I think that is... Spot on. Um, What we need to be cognizant of is each time we introduce one of these more powerful technologies to the marketplace and to our businesses is that there are going to be, as you mentioned, those unintended consequences because these things are powerful. So let's be respectful of what it is that we are dealing with and let's behave as if we respect it by putting in place those guardrails, those safeguards that will keep us from harming ourselves and harming our customers and our employees.
1: I think part of those safeguards, though, are to assess the impact. So there, there has to be a risk assessment. Right. I mean, the, the the you know, because you need to move forward with this stuff. Um, uh, so, and you, and you don't want, like, a one-size-fits-all governance model.
0: So in this podcast, we talked about the idea that executives are being hit right now with fairly stark views of what AI is and what an AI might do to civilization, to health and other types of things. But through this, we've gone back to a very pragmatic view of governance, calibration, design thinking, other types of things. So if I'm an executive and I want to secure the value of AI as it relates to my internal p as it may provide competitive advantage or anything of that nature – What does it all mean to me in terms of my thinking and my planning? I think there's three things. So
1: number one, it's going to let you um, hyper-personalize customer experiences, right? When you have millions of customers, it's pretty hard to scale that. It's pretty hard. So typically what you'll do is you'll do segmentation. So I've got 100 segments. But what if you could get down to that segment of one, you know? So it's hyper-personal experiences. Um, Number two, it's business processes, making more intelligent and automated decisions in that business process. And finally, those two things are going to lead to a more scalable business. You're going to be able to grow faster. It's not going to be as dependent upon your ability to grow people uh, to to create those better decisions and and hyper-personalized experiences.
2: So in the customer experience team, we talk about customer experience management, which is six principles – I would say that if you are able to appropriately apply artificial intelligence, you can take care of five of those. How well you research your, your customers and what their needs are and who they are. How well you prioritize their needs against your business capabilities. How well you design experiences that will be delightful and delighting to them. Um, how well you actually enable the workforce to deliver those experiences as well as enabling your partners to support you deliver those experiences. And then how will you go back and measure whether or not you have effectively done those things?
0: Thanks, guys, for joining us today.
2: Yeah, great. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.